I hope you know you're applauding for yourselves right there. It's a little... Hmm. <laughs> Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> this morning I'm reading from Revelation, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. He who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I myself conquered, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> When I was younger, I spent several years, uh, when I was a teenager, working at HEB as a cashier. Uh, well, first as a bag boy, but I was so good at bagging groceries, they promoted me. <laughs> You'd be surprised how hard it is. Uh, it was a great job, and I, I still, I loved every minute of it. I tell people all the time, if it had paid better, I might still be doing it. Um, right, if the whole ministry thing hadn't panned out, I could have gone back and been a cashier at HEB. That's my fallback career. Uh, you know, and I tell people today, still, if you've got like a teenage kid who needs a job, I mean, that's that's the place to go, right? They pay their employees well, they treat the the workers really well. They're they're great about working with you on your schedule because they understand half their employees are students, so they're flexible, they're wonderful, right? Your schedule comes out. They they always give make sure to give you like the amount of hours you actually want. Very rarely do they cut you short or give you too many. Uh, and, and if you're staying there a long time, they promote from within, right? So all their managers, all their upper-level staff, they've all worked in the storefront before, so they know what it's like. Uh, they, they know how hard the employees work. They know what it's like to deal with the customers, right? They know what works and what doesn't work, so they run the store really well. Uh, it's a fantastic... My, my favorite, though, was because I would often be, like, there at night, and I'd be the only guy working the night shift. I got sent up to the parking lot to do the cart duty, and eventually they just started doing that to me all the time. So, like, I'd do an eight-hour shift on a Saturday just out in the parking lot the whole time gathering carts. And it's awesome because if you're out gathering carts, no customers talk to you. It's great. <laughs> I loved every minute of it. Telling you it's the ideal job. All, you, you get your exercise in, and you don't deal with people. It's perfect. <laughs> but you guys are fine. I love you all. It's great. Um, 
So I, I, you know, I tell people all the time, it's a great place to work, great, great company to support. But then I, I moved uh, to Dallas where there are no HEBs, and I became a true HEB evangelist, right? You guys up there, y'all don't know what you're missing, right? This store is incredible. They have store brand stuff that's better than the name brand sometimes, and the prices are great. The produce is always fresh. It's always better quality than any other grocery store in town. Some of them even have electronic sections. It's wonderful, right? I'm literally evangelizing for a grocery store in Dallas. Now, we all do that to one degree or another with things that we like. Right? If we've got a favorite store, maybe you too are an H-E-B evangelist, or H-Evangelist, as I like to say. But we also do it with things like, uh, like movies that we love, right? books that, that we really enjoyed, uh, restaurants we like, foods we like, drinks we like, coffee shops, even people, right? Hey, you need to meet so-and-so that you'll really, you two will really hit it off. When there are things, brands, foods, drinks, and people that have made our life better, we don't hesitate to go and tell other people about it so that it can make their life better too. So, what does it say about our faith that we don't do the same thing there? Churches have a weird challenge before us today. For a very, very long time, it was the case in most of the Western world that uh, Christians were good people, right? Christianity was considered a good thing. And so, generally speaking, if you were, you know, especially pious or devout, most people assumed you were a very, very good person to be around. They trusted you. You were respected. Religious leaders like myself had uh, sort of a prestigious social standing in the community because we're the people who lead the church, right? We should be the best of the best. And so, for a very, very long time, Churches had no problem filling the pews because people just came to church. It's what they did. And those same churches had no problem with the budget because people just gave to the church. It's what you did. Even the small churches in small towns, even though they may not have the same amount of money as a church in a bigger town, still was going to be fine. People gave. It's just what people did. And that went on for a long time. But right around the late 80s, early 90s, there was a bit of a shift and, and Christianity went from being this, this widely considered positive thing to being neutral. And so for a while, Christianity was just sort of viewed as this neutral thing, right? You could be a good person and be a Christian. You could be a good person and not be a Christian. It wasn't necessarily tied together in most people's minds. It just sort of existed. And so, you know, that's, that's right, the area that I came of age in, Right? With, with sort of neutral Christianity in the eyes of most of the world. And so during that time, what happened is uh, a lot of churches became what they call seeker-sensitive, meaning they set up their church, uh, everything about it, the, the design of the building, the, the, the content of the worship service, the style of music, the way the pastor dressed, the way that they preached, all of it was, was intended so that if someone walked into their church on a Sunday morning who was not a Christian, was not raised in the church, didn't know anything about the faith, they could come in and right off the bat, they would feel comfortable. They would understand what was going on. They would, they would fit right in as easily as possible. And it actually worked for a little while. But, you know, during that time, the only real social cost that was associated with being a Christian is that you might be, like, slightly less cool. And that wasn't a problem for me because, as you can tell, I radiate coolness, right? 
never affected me at all. You can ask my wife. <laughs> but that was it, right? You might get invited if you're a young person and you became a Christian and you went, like the difference is you might get invited to a few less parties. You might lose one or two friends, but you'd, you'd find new ones. You'd be okay. But that's not the world we live in anymore. About 10 to 15 years ago, things started to shift again. The, the secular world no longer views Christianity or Christians as neutral. It now views them as evil. Christians and our faith are seen as undermining the social good. That's the prevailing viewpoint. In other words, now, now the social cost of becoming a Christian when you are not one is that it's not just you'll be a little less cool than you were before, now you might actually be seen as being a bad person because your faith is undermining the social good. And what that means for churches is that it doesn't matter if we're seeker-sensitive anymore. There are no seekers. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's not like a crowd outside our doors begging to get in. See, there was a time when, when even though the church was, was considered fairly neutral morally, people still understood on some level that if your life was falling apart and you needed a place to go to for hope and help, you could go to a church. That's not the case anymore. Maybe a handful of people still cling on to that, but by and large, it's not. We simply cannot hope to just attract people into our churches, right? There is no such thing as millennial bait that you can put out and let them come and get you, right? It doesn't work. We have to go out and get them, and it's a problem because we don't know how. In fact, for so long, for so long, because churches could fill themselves up with people, could fill their bank accounts with money without even trying, the church, by and large, stopped being the church. We even really stopped teaching the faith to the people who were already here. I'm willing to bet most of you don't actually know why we believe some of the things we believe. Most of you don't maybe know why we have the specific ethics and morals that we have. Other than to say, well, it's in the Bible, and that's just not a convincing answer anymore. In fact, when I was in fifth grade, our, our church did one of those uh, you know, Christian sex ed things for the kids who were starting puberty and getting into that world. And I can tell you, they didn't teach us a thing in that program that was not said in the public schools. Not a thing. It was exactly the same. Warnings against diseases and unwanted pregnancies, and that was it. No explanation of, of why God would care about it. No explanation of why it's in the Bible. Of why this is so important to us, specifically as Christians. We just stopped. We didn't have to try, and we've forgotten how. If you need a, an example of how bad things have gotten... Listen to this. Based on a study released in 2007, which is you know, 14 years ago, so things have gotten worse, 
we found that most of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians were statistically equivalent to those of non-Christians. Born-again believers were just as likely to bet or gamble, to visit a pornographic website, to take something that did not belong to them, to consult a medium or a psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk or to have used an illegal, non-prescription drug, to have said something to someone that was not true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did, and to have said mean things behind another person's back. There was no difference. One study we conducted examined Americans' engagement in some type of sexually inappropriate behavior, including looking at online pornography, viewing sexually explicit magazines or movies, or having an intimate sexual encounter outside of marriage. In all, we found that 30% of born-again Christians admitted to at least one of these activities in the past 30 days, compared with 35% of other Americans. In statistical and practical terms, this means the two groups are essentially no different from each other. The numbers don't lie. Christians in our part of the world are not different from non-Christians. There's no practical difference. The only thing that sets us apart is where we spend our Sunday mornings. That's it. That tells us a few things. That tells us that by and large our faith is already dead. Our faith has no meaning in our lives beyond the hours we spend in church on Sunday morning. It tells us our churches have failed to actually communicate the faith. It tells us most of us have not been transformed by the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. We haven't. Plain and simple. The numbers are right there. Is it any wonder that people are not trying to bust down our doors to get in here? It's plain for everyone to see we aren't offering anything right now that they can't get elsewhere. Worse, it's quite plain that we're hypocrites. It would be one thing if we preach that everyone's a sinner and it's okay, right? We, we all make mistakes, but we try to be better. But evidently, we aren't even trying to be better. So it's no wonder. It's no wonder that our churches are falling apart. Do you know... When churches grow these days, by and large, the new members they add fall into one of two categories. They're either people who are lifelong Christians, lifelong churchgoers, who have moved into a new town and need to find a place to worship, or they are people who are dissatisfied with the church down the road and they've come to join your church. Now, don't get me wrong, I'll take it, right? It's great. I'll take anyone who walks through those doors. I love it. I'm, it's, it's wonderful. But in the big picture, it means that our church is not growing. It's just shuffling people around. There's a reason why the church in the West is declining, even as individual specific churches may experience incredible growth. Because what's happening generally is not that they are reaching new people for the gospel, but that the people from that church and that church just started going here. There is a problem with our faith. Not a problem with our churches, a problem with our faith. Because I can tell you, churches are doing everything they can possibly think of to fix it. Put up the next slide. You're going to learn some Greek this morning. Welcome to class. 
Um, so these are the three words that Jesus uses in this passage. The first is kliaros, which is what's translated as lukewarm. And what it really describes is a person who is sort of fluctuating between a torpor and a fervor of love. So they're going back and forth between effectively feeling nothing to these intense spikes of passion. And if that doesn't accurately describe the average American Christian's faith, I don't know what does. All of us have these moments <clears throat> where, where our faith just intensifies for some reason, right? Maybe it's a walk to Emmaus or a mission trip or a really good worship service or your ruggedly handsome pastor preached a great sermon and you were just inspired to go out, right? So you have these, these brief moments. And they last, what, one day, two days, maybe a week. And then it falls off. And once again, your faith is largely meaningless. It's lip service. And so, we spend a lot of time chasing those, those spikes of intensity and passion. It's why uh, everyone wants me as their pastor. <laughs> Not me specifically, but, but what I found as I came into the ministry is that like, I am everyone's ideal image of what a pastor is supposed to be, right? I'm young. I'm incredibly good looking. <laughs> My wife's not here this morning, so I can say these things, right? I'm young. I have a young family. I have a little baby, right? That's exciting. Everyone likes that. I'm a decent preacher. I talk like I know things. I don't, but people don't need to know that, right? I look smart because I wear glasses, right? I am what everyone wants. Now, I'm not actually a good fit for every church. I would not be a good pastor in every context. In some churches, I would do a terrible job because I would never be able to connect with the people. But everyone thinks that I'm what they want because they're chasing that spike and they're hoping, oh, this young pastor has energy. He can give us that. And maybe if he gives us that, that spike in worship one morning, it'll just continue. We do the same thing with our programming and our ministries and our Bible study. We're chasing that spike, that intensity of faith we experience one time and we want it again. And, and so we try and keep turning to external sources for it. We try and figure out what the church can do to give us that. And each time we're hoping if it happens again, it will stay. The next word is pasukros. I know it says psychros, but in Greek the Y is pronounced as a U, and you pronounce the P. There are no silent P's. So actually they're called pasukiatrists, not psychiatrists. So... Go tell them next time. They'll, they'll, uh, they'll like that. Psukros, it means cold. But uh, more than that, it implies something that's uh, sluggish or inert. The implication here being uh, a faith that is actually completely dead and gone. Complete lack of desire for holiness, for communion with God. Which is odd because Jesus says it would be better if you were that. It would be better if your faith was just so dead you had lost all desire for holiness. You had lost all desire to come and worship. Which seems counterintuitive, right? I mean, at least the, at least the lukewarm people have, are chasing after something. They want that holiness. But you know what? If your faith has gone so dead, you've lost all interest, lost all desire for anything to do with God, at least you can't pretend there's not a problem anymore. 
at least you have confronted the reality of where your heart is. You know what happens when people who, who fit into that description, they leave the church. They're done. Because, I mean, why would they stay? They're not getting anything out of it. They don't have a desire for it. It's, it's not a good use of their time, so they go. And this is, in fact, what we're seeing all over the Western world today, is that people realize that that's where they're at. They, don't, they aren't particularly interested in this stuff. They aren't passionate about it. They're not getting anything out of worship. So why should they come on Sunday morning? So they go. And Jesus says, you know what? I can work with that. At least that I can work with. And finally, there's zestos. And yes, it is the root word of zesty. So God wants you to have a zesty faith, just like a salsa. It doesn't just mean hot, though. It means uh, boiling hot, something that's boiling over. So the implication, of course, is that your faith is actually so intense and so passionate, it's boiling over and can't be contained. The, the prophet Jeremiah, during his life and ministry, uh, was profoundly unpopular with people because he would go and he would uh, preach things that people didn't want to hear. Uh, if you read it, it's really, it's really like some fire and brimstone stuff. Right? He goes and preaches and you know, you're all scum and you're going to die, right? Not what you want to hear. People didn't like him. And he kept calling them to repentance and calling them to repentance. And more often than not, he got beaten and thrown out of the public square. He got thrown down a well at least once, right? Got imprisoned multiple times. No one liked him. And someone finally said to him, Jeremiah, um, <laughs> you know what's going to happen if you go and, and, and preach again. So why do you, why do, you do it? Why, do you, why don't you just stop? And he said, it's like there's this fire burning inside my bones. And I can't keep it in. I have to let it out. That's the image that Jesus is trying to convey here. This faith that is so passionate and burning so brightly that you cannot hold it in. Even if you wanted to, it would burst out. Now, I know you're probably wondering what exactly any of this has to do with the video that played. <coughs> you know, uh, all through the month of October, we're going to talk about stewardship. And, and normally, a stewardship sermon series is, is boils down to basically, uh, give us more money, please, 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 please. And I'll talk about money, don't worry, we'll get there. You're going to love it. Uh, we'll talk about money, but... but I wouldn't be doing my job as your pastor very well if I told you that stewardship was all about money. Because here's the thing. When, when giving drops off, and it has dropped off in this church, when it drops off, when it declines, when people stop doing it, that is a symptom of a deeper problem. If all we do is try and convince you to give more, it's like we're putting a Band-Aid over it. And we'll just have to keep doing it. I gotta tell you, I don't want to preach another stewardship sermon series next fall. I would I would love it if if we fix the problem and they're no longer necessary because people just know what to do. See, stewardship's not about the money. The money's just a symptom. And really the money, the 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 building that we're in, the staff that we have, all the programs we do, they are not an end in themselves. John Wesley, when he, he 
at a gathering of his preachers in the early days of the Methodist movement told them, you've got one job to do. All you have to do all day long is save souls. That's it. That's your job. You have one job, and that is it. Anything else you do is superfluous. Everything you do, you do in service of that goal right there. Period. Everything else is a means to that end. Everything we do, the building that we pay for, the lights we turn on, the worship we have, the staff we employ, the programs we have, all of it, all of it is a means to an end. And that end, that end is bringing salvation to the people who desperately need it. And that might include some of the people here in this room. Every one of you, every one of you has family, friends, co-workers, and neighbors who have not heard the gospel. They may even be churchgoers, but it's worth pointing out that going to church does not make you a Christian any more than going to a gym makes you an athlete. You can be a churchgoer all your life, but never actually be a Christian. This is, in fact, the problem with lukewarm faith, isn't it? You may never know there's a problem. See, our faith is not just about living a good and moral life. That's part of it, sure. But, but that's not all there is to it. Our faith is the fact that we have been saved. I mean, how many of us really believe and acknowledge the reality of that? We've been saved. We've been freed from, from the power of sin. You know, sin enslaves people in a very real way. We're powerless to resist it without the power of Christ. We've been set free. We've been saved. And not just, not just you, not just us. We are, not, we are not merely saved from sin. We are saved for the world. It's not just about us being set free. It's about what we then do with that freedom. Because you see, the, the story of salvation is not limited to, to us. The image that we get in the Bible is not just of God's people being saved and then carried off up into heaven to live eternity among the clouds. Right? That's not it. It's more holistic than that. God tells us he comes and restores all of creation back to what it was meant to be. See, human sin doesn't just affect us. It doesn't just affect the people around us. It affects every atom of creation. The first few chapters of Genesis tell us that God created humanity not not just to be his image, but to, to order and guide and rule his creation. When we fell, everything fell with us. The world does not work like it's supposed to because of our sin. Salvation encompasses all of that. The image of the, uh, that we get in the Bible is, is actually of a return to what it was like in the garden before the fall when Adam and Eve would stroll in the evening hand in hand with their Lord. We have a message of unimaginable hope. The ironclad promise that the creator of the universe the one who made each and every one of us is going to come again 
And all the bad things in this world will be undone. All the suffering and the pain and the disease and the illness and all the other things that are broken become undone. Death itself will be undone. The broken systems that we have in place will be undone. And do you see what that means? I mean, come on, does our world not need that message of hope that there is, in fact, a higher power than the governments that lead us? So, you all have family and friends and neighbors and co-workers who are in need of salvation and you are their lifeline. You have been put in their lives for a reason. And they may be lifelong churchgoers and they may still need to hear the message. They may still need it. So our faith is lukewarm. And so long as it stays lukewarm, we will not be able to reach people outside these walls. We just won't. It won't work. We have to figure out how to heat that faith up. How to bring it to the boiling point so that we can't contain it any longer. Because what would it be like if you actually talked to those people about your faith? Not about your church, by the way. There's a difference between talking about your church and talking about your God. And I'm betting actually many of you are perfectly fine talking about your church and and how much you love your church and how much you're blessed by it, right? But that is not the same thing as sharing your faith with somebody, as telling someone what Jesus has done for you and how he's set you free, how he's healed you, how he's transformed your life. So we have to heat up our faith. I don't think it will happen until we get to a point where we all have put all of our hope in its entirety in the promise of the Gospels. Not in political parties or elections or our paychecks or our jobs or anything else in this world, but only and solely in Jesus Christ. I gotta tell you, There's nothing I can do to get you there. And there's nothing you can do to get me there. Because I'm including myself in this. I don't want you to think that I'm up here lecturing you on how you can be more like me. Because if you dig deeper into those studies, those numbers, they actually are exactly the same for clergy. Nothing I can do. Nothing you can do for me. So the solution, the solution has to be for us to ask God to do it. It has to be for us to go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to ignite our faith. To ask him to show us what it is we're missing that's holding us back. To ask him to heat it up for us. If you want to know why I spend so much time in like the few months I've been here going over the basics and teaching you to pray, this is part of it. 
Because we can't get where we need to be if our faith doesn't heat up, and we can't have that happen if we don't start having real, meaningful encounters with our risen Lord. And that happens through prayer and Scripture and the basic things that we're all supposed to be doing that we just don't do like we're supposed to. But if there's one thing I can promise you, it's this. When that starts to happen, when our faith begins to boil over and we begin to share it with others and they begin to see something different about us, that is when God begins to work miracles and do great things. That's when we begin to see transformation, not just in our own lives, but in our church and in our community. If I might make a suggestion, we're about to take communion. And this is not merely symbolic of something that happened 2,000 years ago. When we take communion, we receive the grace of our Lord. So if I could suggest that when you prayerfully consume the elements, you ask for the grace to heat your faith to the boiling point. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.